0: Hi everyone, my name is PK and I'm so grateful today to have Kent Lardner on with me. And this is going to be a really cool episode, something we haven't really done for a while. Ken, you know, when everyone talks data, they generally talk data with the intention of trying to sell you something like a property or something like that. The reason I have Kent on is that I saw him on LinkedIn. I was like, who's this guy sharing all of this amazing information with no agenda? All right. No agenda whatsoever, except data for data's sake. So this is going to be a phenomenal um, episode. Hopefully, Kent, thank you so much for making time.
1: Oh, PK. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, I think it was more a bit of a Gary V inspired thing to you know give stuff away, and then it comes back at you. <laughs> um, so, so I think that that was a lot of my inspiration. Actually, um, I, I'm I'm not as much of a sales hypey guy as him. I, I'd love to have a little bit more of that in my arsenal, but um, I, I, LinkedIn's been my main focus for, for some time. I, I was on Facebook, and I effectively just did took it, stepped away from it. I just couldn't relate to some of the commentary and comments and, and whatnot. So LinkedIn's my domain. Absolutely.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Okay. um. So today for everyone who's listening, we'll go through, can, we'll share, you know, insights like, where he sees the biggest rent rises at a high level across Australia, where he sees continued capital growth occurring for the next few years, but also where the downturn has started but will be the shallowest, those types of areas. And then he'll also also talk about some essential data factors that I think investors, and more important than me, Kent thinks that investors, investors should have in their arsenal before investing in property. Welcome to the Oz Property Investment Mastery Podcast. My name's PK and I help busy people build passive income by buying top 5% growth, and cash flow property and build a portfolio using data without wasting months doing research spending weekends at inspection or catching flights or dropping 10 to twenty thousand dollars on buyers agents every single time so if you're confused lack confidence and just overwhelmed with all the information and marketing misinformation available online and don't know where to start then this show is for you It would be super amazing if you could just introduce your data background. I think you you know you've worked for Core Logic, for PriceFinder, all these household names. What's your sort of data background, and and why is data important in the first place?
1: Yeah, I um I started out. I was sponsored by a, a mortgage insurance company. Uh, back then, it was called GE Mortgage Insurance, and uh, at that time, they had a plan to migrate out of just focusing on lenders mortgage insurance and moving into data analytics, automated valuation models, and some other risk products. So they sponsored me to go back to school and study, and also sent me to meet some very wise men in uh, both Canada and the US who were experts in the domain. So they sponsored me and I learned for a few years and ended up learning how to design and build uh, AVMs and some risk models and whatnot. And at the time when we were ready to go, um, the, the GE split that side of the business out and it became Genworth Financial. So all those plans were effectively turfed. And uh, at that time, that's when uh, PriceFinder um, knocked on my door and, and we, we, uh, we designed the interactive PriceFinder estimates tool uh, with those skills that, um, that GE so kindly helped uh, develop um so i spent a few years with with pricefinder um we launched that um back in those days it was a lot of that stuff was new and there was a fair bit of mystique around uh automated valuation models and uh the interactive model that we created uh we sold that business to the domain group and i moved over to uh corelogic or back then rp data mm. i was head of their analytics banking platform team and uh I finished up my time there. The last stint I did at uh, CoreLogic was about a year up in China trying to set up uh, the equivalent of an RP data uh, oh, in China cool. with a partner. And it was it was so fascinating. You, you're in awe. I don't know if you've been to China, but it's just it's the scale of it. It's just mind-blowing. So it was an exciting time. Um, so there was, there was about a year uh, I spent there. And then I came back to Australia, I took one small project, I um, redesigned a website called Real Estate View, and I'd never done anything like that before and um, learned a little bit about what SEO was, I didn't even know what the acronym meant. (laughs) Uh, So we we designed a landing page for every every property in the country and got that from about 600,000 visitors a month up to about 2.7 million. Um, So people were searching for addresses and doing that a fair bit. Um, and I, since then I've just been running my own business called suburb trends, which is you know, devoted to a, a whole range of, um, property data and analytics functions.
0: Yeah. And I, I didn't, I didn't send you this question before, but it just came to me now. So I hope you don't mind me asking these days, you know, I see someone like you, who's a, a true, you could say data connoisseur, you know, you, you live and breathe data, not not in like a superficial way, but for the sake of getting true insights. And then on the other side of the spectrum, all over advertisement, you know, whether it's YouTube ads, Facebook ads, whatever, you know, you have all these people that claim and once again, I don't want to speak bad about anyone, but you know, there's terms like data science or AI or machine learning in real estate that get thrown around very loosely. How do people understand when they think everyone is into data these days, anyone who's selling a house and land package, getting a kickback from a developer? Effectively, end-to-end
1: is the data science piece where you're really doing everything from collecting it, understanding how it's collected, cleaning it, munging it, preparing it. Uh, and then modeling it, um, you need to, and the way you can model it, obviously, machine learning is a go-to for most people now, but you need to understand what that is. Uh, and then interpreting the output of it. Um, I do a, a fair bit of machine learning um, with the models to to do some predictions, um, specifically uh, predicting sales volumes and um, listings volumes and then combining those to come up with an inventory analysis but more now i'm moving on to a lot of rental analytics so forecasting again forecasting how many uh, properties are going to be vacant uh, yeah. over 21 days vacant etc and then calculating your forecast vacancy rate um so the answer your question around the difference is it is abused. The term machine learning AI, people just throw it away and people go, ooh, ah, that's impressive, and don't ask questions. And I, I think you'll find if you scratch the surface, most people wouldn't have an answer, and there's a bit of BS. Um, I think a lot of companies love to use reference uh, reference AI uh, because it might add a little bit to their earnings multiple. Um, so, yeah, it, it, well said. I think we should be cynical, right? Yeah. Um, the, the bottom line is um, I had a team of, analytics, you know, really well-paid, highly educated analytics people, and they were building models one by one, you know, effectively regression model, you know, linear, non-linear models, building models, and all really machine learning has done is given us the ability to replicate the uh, productivity of those types of people a hundred times over. What doesn't change is you still need to understand the data. You still need to be able to effectively prepare that data, uh, optimize the inputs going into this, and then understand what comes out again. And if you don't have that domain knowledge, you really don't get much out of it. So I think that's a really important piece.
0: No, that that's 100% correct. You know, just because you have a lot of data, that doesn't mean that you know how to use data. And when we Talk about things like regression analysis, like multivariate regressions, normalizing for collinearity, and order correlate. There's a lot that goes into, it. and if you just ask the right questions, you very quickly realize who actually knows what they're talking about versus who doesn't. <laughs> exactly, and, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of bad. Uh,
1: look actually, the, the answer interesting thing, I was using machine learning models a lot up until about six months ago, and then everything started to turn. So you have to almost Given how much has changed in the last six months, you've got to start over again. And that's something I've learned is you've almost got to, if you thought you could set a standard model and walk away, Mm. you know, come back in two or three years time, you're really wrong because everything's changed. All the rules are different. All the data is different. So there's a whole stack of new data variables that I'd love to talk about today that I'm now using that. I didn't really focus on six months ago, but now they've opened up and there's a whole new you know, world of opportunities there. But what did happen is we, we were I was building models. We were all working with models with data going one way, prices going one way, inventory flat all going down, and it, it was pretty easy. They were fat and happy models, right? Mm. And then everything changed, you know, yeah. things started to turn. And right now we've got some oddball things going on where You've got prices going down at the same time as inventory going down. So there's some fascinating, conflicting things
0: happening in the data world. So maybe on those fat and happy, I think that was the term, right? Fat and happy models. <laughs> fat I think and happy they, models. I <laughs> think they still probably exist for the rental market because the rental market is still very happy stable and going yep. along. So, like, where do you see? I mean, everyone knows we're in a rental crisis, a chronic lack of rental properties, almost in all of Australia. Where is it the most acute? Where are these? I mean, it's a social problem. So we we can't take away from the social issue. But for property investors, where can they get the highest rent raises or the best passive income increases over the short term?
1: Yeah, look, it is a crisis. Southeast Queensland is in a mess, um, and that contagion is spreading. So a couple of call-outs that I'm observing is the correlation. You mentioned correlation earlier. Thank you. Um, If you look at income versus rents, there's a very, very strong correlation there. So what that tells us is you can't ignore uh, income, so you can't expect a linear growth in rents in an area where it detaches itself from income, people can't pay more than a certain percentage of their income on rents. So mm. you've got to always keep that in mind. That you know, whilst the model might work from here to here, it's not going to continue to grow in a linear manner. Expect people aren't going to borrow money to pay rent. No. Whereas in the in the uh, mortgage space, they could borrow significant amounts of money. So the correlation was a lot less between uh, income and house prices but it was a fairly decent correlation between income and mortgages and yeah. they'd borrow what they could same principle applies to rent they'll pay what they can but not not a cent more so i think that's the call out now a couple of areas so the areas that are standing out um the unit market if i looked at unit markets if you hear me if you've heard me talk about a year ago i really was a little bit negative on on units so i'd always Kind of say, look, look at houses, look at houses, because of the history. You know, units have not had as solid a capital growth um over the long term, over the last 20 years compared to houses. But right now, units are looking very differently. So I'm letting the data speak. And and when I do some scorecards and whatnot, um, the 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 unit markets are actually really starting to bubble up and look quite quite solid. Now um uh, so, answering your question about where rents are going up, I've done a couple of things. I've 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 looked at well, where is the uh, affordability uh, ratio less than thirty percent? What I mean by that is where are where are those markets? Where are those suburbs where people are spending less than thirty percent of their household income on rents? So that gives me a proxy for is there room for growth? in terms of rents. Then the other thing I've looked at is, well, where are vacancy rates still falling? Where are they critically low or falling? Then you've got the other factor is where they've been high and the prices have had to adjust to then drag people back in and now we're coming off a very low base and those rents are rising. And you've got a combination. So you've got – and the example of that is Docklands and Inner Melbourne where vacancy rates were double-digit for some time. And what happened is finally landlords put their pride on the shelf and adjusted their prices and people are coming back in. But because we're coming off such a low base, those vacancy rates are coming down and those rents are really surging. So put that to one side. By and large, what I've identified is markets that are, have got relatively low low vacancy rates but have come down a bit and have that affordability Number that ratio percentage that still looks good. So Brisbane, Brisbane units specifically in southeast Queensland, Cairns. I'm looking at a list here, so I've just got the the list on the camera. Um, Orange, Maitland, and Perth. So I'm kind of broad, high level stuff. So that's for the unit market. And now for houses, I'll kind of go zoom out and uh, talk at a regional level. um Adelaide, the regions of Unley, Adelaide Hills. Playford and Port Adelaide. So they've all got, I believe, room to grow with their rents. Belconin, Tugranong, and North Canberra. Uh, Ballarat has got room for rental growth. Brisbane South, specifically that Carondale market. Maitland reappears again, but now in the housing space. Melbourne Northeast and Northwest houses, areas like Kailaw or Keelaw, Yarra Ranges, and Monash. Uh, and then to Sydney, the outer Southwest, Blacktown, Outer West, and Blue Mountains. Still some room to to grow there for rents
0: right i find that really interesting i was um an article is going to come out very very shortly um on realestate.com.au where i was also talking about the fact that house prices have gone up so much in southeast queensland everyone knows that in brisbane and other places like that but there's still some townhouse type of dwelling types where they haven't gone up as much and there's plenty of room for them to to go up and then when you correlate correlate that or you sort of say, okay, well, what about the rental side of things? And you're saying that units or townhouses have a lot of potential there too. I just think that you can't say no to buying in Brisbane right now. It's about the right dwelling type in the right suburb, as opposed to, hey, this house has gone up 50%. We've we've we're past the boom. That yeah. may be the case, but for units, it's it's not necessarily the case. And I, I personally, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I personally don't mean go out and buy, you know, units in Newstead or West End. You know, the right type of dwelling is is almost is always very important. One question I had as a subset of that. Um, Kent is, you know, this kind of 30% magical um, ceiling. Everyone kind of agrees, you know, that 30% of incomes towards rent, that is sort of the affordability threshold. I think, you know, right now across the board, we're somewhere like 22, 23%. I could be wrong. It's reached almost 30% before. That was many, many years ago. If I If I look at the ABS data correctly, why is it 30%? I mean, Times have changed. Um, yeah, I, I
1: think it's an arbitrary figure. I, I first uncovered it about 20 years ago in a report from Demographia, which is a you know global research done to look at affordability in both rental and mortgage space across effectively you know, most of the globe. So that's where the 30%'s just been imprinted with me. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what I work to. So I don't know the original source of it, but I'll I'll attribute it to
0: demographia. Oh, sure. Cause I know there's a precedence for around 30%, but when I look at other places around the globe, it's well beyond 30% and people are just paying rent. So it's just like, I like to question things. I thought, let me ask that question. And then just like you had shared that, that list, what's your view on the best areas for capital growth in the next few years. I mean, not everywhere in Australia has boomed to the same degree. And maybe the flip side of that question to those areas that have boomed and Are now going down. Much of Sydney, much of Melbourne. Example, you know, where is that boom going to be the shallowest, and where is the bottom of the market, the magical bottom of the market? When's that going to occur? Tough questions, Kent. (laughs) And that, well, I I think what we
1: first thing you call out is it's markets. Um, So you know, I like like to look at an SA three as a market, um, Mm -hmm. which is you know the statistical area three. Um, used by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So I don't like to look at a suburb as a market. I don't like to look at a city as a market. I like to look at an SA3 as a market. And then what we're even finding now is within SA3s, there's sub-market groups within that are starting to really behave differently, especially the top end. Um, A lot of the top end stuff, a lot of the owners are quite aware. They're smart, obviously. They're pulling properties off the market. If I don't have to sell now, I won't. Therefore, they pull it off the market. So the top end are seeing a a decrease in the volume of of listings and sales. And what that's doing is having this artificial bias towards uh, the lower end because the others aren't pulling back. So the stuff in the middle, the stuff at the lower end, Um, effectively what that does is skew or create this compositional bias to drag your price down. So there's some interesting things happening at the moment. So uh, that was probably the first call out. What I will do is just kind of maybe point to a little anecdotal story of what happened in the early 90s. So those who were around, those of my age group and older, would know that the Victorian economy went through a really hard time in the early 90s. And then they had a change of government to a fellow by the name of Jeff Kennett. So what happened is the economy really went through some tough times. And what happened, if you look at the the long-term trend line of price growth for the, for the city of Melbourne and most of the suburbs and markets of Melbourne, they dipped. They dipped in the 90s according to the dip in the economy. And then what happened, it was just like a little little, little dip that caught up to the long-term trend line as soon as the economy got back on track. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there. And I think you know, kudos to core logic is they've always called out peak to trough. I don't know if you ever you know, heard Tim reference mm-hmm. it. And and I don't think I ever truly appreciated when he said it. Now I do, and I think more than ever now I understand and value what he what he's always said is that peak to trough is because I think what will happen is you you now know what that market's capable of reaching. Mm. How fast could it? You know, how elastic will it be? How how fast could the market rise back to that long term trend, just like it did? In, in Melbourne in the 1990s. So I, I'm of the opinion that, that, and it's a bit of a trick with data here because the question is where will be where will, will we see the highest capital growth? Well, I would argue the markets that dip the furthest may well be the ones that sling back the fastest or sling back and give you the highest rise again. It's just a matter of how long. And then looking at some other fundamentals and not applying that as a general rule. Yeah. But I do think that will happen. So I think the first one will be uh, watch for markets that have this this almost a a dip that is beyond reason. You know, a significant, substan- substantial dip that doesn't make much sense. And there could be emotions in it. You know, it could be some forced sales. But I think a lot of people just panic. So I think I think look for the dips. That'll be another one. The other one I'll look at. I think the down downsizer markets will be of interest. So you've got even though you know Sydney and Melbourne housing markets might have, might come back 10, 20 percent, whatever that percentage is, um, there's a lot of boomers who own property that are very cashed up and it, you know it doesn't matter that it's 10 percent down. it doesn't matter at all. So those people will take their their wealth with them into the traditional retirement downsizer locations. And they'll spend that money. Mm. You know, they'll spend it to keep their pension. That's still happening. There's still a big wave of boomers retiring. So I would argue that there's going to be a lot of these downsizer locations, retirement locations that will still enjoy growth. Um, they'll be influenced by what's happening. But the boomers aren't because they're they're all cash buyers. They don't don't care about interest rates. So I think that was another one. And then I had the third point I I made, um, the really big infrastructure projects, you know, the stuff that got the world out of the Great Depression, the Hoover Dam stuff. You know, look for those types of big scale, dig us out of the hole type projects. I think the fast rail might be our Hoover Dam. Right. And that'll link up to my hometown of Newcastle. It'll go through Wyong and Gosford. So with that view of Sydney being, you know, the six cities idea, what we might find is there could be then a very strong pegging or correlation between those markets. So it becomes one big Sydney market. And, you know, effectively we might find a place like Wyong that is, you know, half the price of Sydney, that could really benefit from a yeah. from a train station, a fast train, you know, forty minutes to Sydney, and it could be just speculation. All <clears throat> you really need is speculative investment to drive that market. Who
0: are saying yes, it could happen, and probably will happen in ten years' time. Enough sentiment, you know, becomes a self fulfilling yes um, prophecy. One thing I just wanted to toy with you was, I think there is this sort of underlying, once again, sentiment that. Sydney Sydney and Melbourne but mostly Sydney will always grow you know it will always grow the fastest it will always grow the most and i think a lot of people at least the you know my audience they sort of think that yes sydney is going to drop it's already dropped more than 5% it will probably drop between 10 and 20% i've been saying this for a long time as well but then that is a really amazing time to buy and of course you know markets within markets i'm just talking sydney here yeah Um, that is a really amazing time to buy, call it next year or whatever it is. And then there's going to be like this amazing boom again. And and you have, it's almost like cryptocurrency, you know, you buy the dip. I, I wanted to toy with that idea because I don't subscribe to it. I wasn't investing, you know, around the Olympics, but we all know how well the property market did around the 2000s. And then, you know, Sydney, I think from 2003 for the next, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 years, it was basically flat. And everyone who thinks right now that, uh, you know, Sydney is always a boom town, back then they were probably thinking Sydney never grows, right? Mm. Like two years ago, I was having to convince people to consider Adelaide and they were like, well, oh, Adelaide never grows. So <laughs> just kind of what's your thoughts on? Could we actually experience a bottom or a a downturn and then Sydney just languishes because of things like, you know, incomes not keeping up with house prices because of higher interest rates? Because, I mean, Australia has the second highest debt to GDP. Could it be that until 2030, Sydney is just kind of lazy and that there are better opportunities elsewhere?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. If the money coming in to buy those properties is dependent on mortgage lending, uh, we can't dismiss the impact that's going to have. You know, we've got, come off a record long period of, of of almost free money. So that's gone. And I don't see that ever coming back. So I think that's going to be the number one constraint, you know, people's ability to borrow. So borrowing capacity will be the number one determinant. Of of everything that goes on. Whereas if we look at what happened post Olympics, um, yeah, that was that long term trend downwards. You know, we came off very high interest rates, and that really kicked kicked the boomer. Yeah. So it wasn't just the Olympics; it was the move, interest rate movement. So I, I I that's the big standout argument for me. Um, Sydney, you know, it's just it's a diverse, amazing place. I think it's going to be a rich person's playground if it's not already. And it'll appeal to a lot of people coming out of Hong Kong or China or whatnot. So it's a, a, you know, there'll be markets that'll still benefit from those cashed up buyers without a doubt. But, you know, I don't think we're really talking about that because we are really focused on, we're not really looking at uh, owner occupied millionaires. We, are you know, we're talking about investment grade type properties, that sub 750 stuff. I think the standout for me of Sydney is, is, You can't buy a house for under seven fifty k in Sydney. Really, it's gone. So you're forced into a different asset class. And I've always said I'm on record saying, look, really, units are a different asset class, and it's a substandard asset class comparison to, to to houses. But you mentioned PK earlier on townhomes, and you know one of the things I thought 2022 would be would be the year of the townhome. Yeah, you know, and and I think I think that could be an asset class that a really nicely designed medium density well located near a light rail whatever that's going to be a fascinating class of property yeah Um, so I think I think that's a standout but yeah I'm not too sure if I could back Sydney over the long term for that investment Greg well there is nothing (laughs) there is no no houses in that 750k bracket to back
0: and I I think that that's That in of itself is a really good point. I always say that if you're an investor, I mean I'm talking about the average investor here. Just because you're living in Sydney uh, doesn't mean you have to buy an investment property in Sydney and outlay a million or a million and a half. You know, surprising. That's still the concept. Of a lot of people because they see it as a world city. That's where all the jobs are. It's not necessarily the case that you have to do that. And just on that point, I completely agree with you on the townhouse point. You know, places like Oxenford, in in the Gold Coast, houses have gone up so much. The rent market is completely booming, and you can still buy a villa. I mean, I'm not talking something with a complex with a pool or a tennis court that's expensive to maintain, but just a one, you know, villa in a complex of Six four pot, or eight. Yeah. It's under half a million dollars. I mean, that will not be the case. (laughs) Let's see if I'm right, but that's not going to be the case in five years' time. Let me tell you that Oh, look.
1: The reason why it jumps at me and I'm nodding is because I do an analysis and I've done a map called cash flow uh, analysis, cash flow map. And what I do is I take properties that are, are recently sold and I pair it to a rental estimate and then I let the highest yields rise to the top. And what are they? By and large, everything you just said. Most of them around tweed heads all the way through that that pocket, you know, just, just to the you know, Brisbane East, but mainly around the tweed. That's where they jump. Um, so that's where the yields are. But, I, you know, I remember I um, the first place that my wife and I bought was a, a beautiful Art Deco unit in Coogee. And the ground floor was a garden unit. So still in the same strata block seven units the bottom one no views but it had a an enclosed little garden area and that was that was definitely worth about 150k more than the rest of them because it would be very suitable to a young family you know um and so you know it was very much a
0: townhouse in a block yeah. of units and downsizes to that same point that you were making before you know someone has a lot of cash in Sydney you know downsizing to a lifestyle location like the gold coast um you know th- there's a lot going for anyway i don't want to spruit gold coast here let's talk about perth real quick um you know because east coast if you're looking for a metropolitan area you know it kind of breaks the rule that you just said under 750k for a freestanding house but in perth you can um, get you know very good quality suburbs. I mean, we're not talking central um, CBD type stuff, but very good quality areas for under half a million, under six hundred thousand, that are yielding between five and six percent. Mm. From a, I mean, no one's got a crystal ball, but what's the data telling you about the the time horizon over the next one, two, three years? How are those types of suburbs going to going to perform? And and I'm kind of positioning this question in the context of. You know, before APRA made those changes in 2016, 2017, everyone sort of thought that Brisbane would be the next big city to boom because Melbourne, Sydney had already boomed. Mm. And because of these macro national changes, it almost kind of took the gloss uh, away from Brisbane just as it was trying to kind of, you know, get started. And, you know, it was like, it was unfortunate to, to say the least. Perth has already done really well. People don't realize that it's actually done really well and it's continuing to do well. But do you think that these interest rate changes, which, um, you know, they are affecting everywhere in Australia, but people don't really have an affordability problem in Perth. Do you think that's going to take the gloss out of Perth or is the data suggesting that there are many areas, freestanding houses that that will continue to do really well in, in the West Coast?
1: Um, I, look, Perth is such a patchwork quilt. It's so many, you know, so South Perth comes up as some some negative sentiment in some of my data and analysis. So, you know, there's some issues there. A couple of other things. So I've got a a, a set of models and data that I've used and no model is perfect. And and the more you leave it through time, the more the model has to change to stay relevant. Um, And the approach that I've taken knocks Perth out. Right, it continually is biased against Perth based on a couple of key metrics I was using, one of those being pipeline supply. But that's changing. Now, what I mean by that is you know, in currently current level inventory and forecast inventory, which also takes into account building approvals over the last you know year or two. And a lot of these markets in Perth have suffered from slightly higher inventory level, but also pipeline supply and some forecast there. So for me. Uh, you know, Perth hasn't really jumped out to date in comparison to some of the other options, specifically Adelaide, Brisbane. But things have changed a lot. Adelaide's becoming very, very tight and it's gone, you know, well, so is Brisbane. So I think that that, that that wave shifted across and a lot of the, you know, online forums have doubled down on Perth. You know, Perth seems to be the hot spot but it still doesn't change the 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 data and the models that I use not that and 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 I could be wrong you know yeah everyone could shift over there and drive the demand up it's just the method and the approach I've used has accounted for supply and demand factors that have penalized perth in comparison to adelaide and brisbane um so look there are some marks I'm just having a quick look at some of the ones that still haven't um peaked perth southwest features very, very strongly in markets that have not peaked yet. So I'm looking at um, Melville, Gosnells, and Calamunda as the SA3s there, and I've got Wanneroo. So pretty overrepresented in my list of of SA3 markets that have yet to peak or maybe peaked in August. So, Mm. you know, so that now they haven't gone to, a lot of them haven't really gone to dizzy heights, but they've done well and they're still doing well.
0: They've done well. And they're they're still doing well. And look, I couldn't agree more um, with that comment around that building approvals pipeline. There is a lot far north and and far south as well. I guess time will tell how much of that building approvals will translate into real buildings you know building costs have gone up so much and you know sentiment often becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy i think i did a video i think it was two years ago and i was looking at the building approvals pipeline in brisbane and just the state of the economy and i was thinking how can Brisbane do that well over the next two years? And then COVID happened, and then all the stimulus happened, and then obviously I was proven completely incorrect. So it, it's hard to pr- uh, predict these things. But in in Perth, it is very patchy. It's not a case of Brisbane a year ago where you put a blindfold on and you make money. That's exactly. definitely not the case. Exactly. But one thing, I, uh, one conversation I had with somebody
1: who was looking at an owner occupied, I said, "Go and look at Perth, because you know if you can work from home." Yeah, you know, if 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 you can be a digital nomad, if you can you know have a if you can get a job that sustains you living in Perth, wow, you know value for money, good quality city, great weather, great housing, and compared to the uh, to to what we've got on 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 the east coast here,
0: it leaves us for dead. Yeah, and we were talking about this before as well, Kent. I think that one of the enemies of future price growth is past price growth. Oftentimes people see that something has grown in the past. Therefore, it's a good bet, right? Like it's a surety that this is an outperforming area for the future. It's often sometimes the opposite. And so that's why I feel that I don't know what your thoughts are, but I feel that we can be quietly confident about Perth because it just really hasn't done anything. Now, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden, because it's done nothing, it will do something. But statistically, regression to the mean. There's more upside than downside.
1: Yeah, I, I have started to look at um, a growth, a long-term growth, five years up to 2019 before the crazy boom. So that gives me a bit of a benchmark to say, well, you know, when things, when the dust settles, will it look like that five-year growth period to 2019? And that's the best I've got. There might be a better approach, but if if somebody's got a better approach, I want to know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, okay. Well, well. Last question, I I wanted to ask you because I, you know, there's literally thousands of people in in my audience that are watching or listening that that want to be like you, like that they and and not from a um you know a weird way, but like from a data perspective, <laughs> they they want to. Uh, understand that they want to make conclusions themselves not just listen to pk and can't be like i want to uh, just follow what they're saying what are some key data metrics or what some key calculations even that investors should have in their arsenal when figuring out where to invest for themselves by themselves yeah um obviously
1: there's some big economic stuff that you've got to get comfortable with. And, you know, as a general rule, does it, does it have all those amenities and facilities and employment? Does it have a good spread of industry as well? You know, you don't want to go into a a one industry town. So that was, they're the kind of the macro things, the airport, the hospital, schools, all that stuff. Once you've got that out of the way and you get down into into the market itself, one of the standouts that the the ABS offers is a socioeconomic index, and it's a score of 1 to 10, 10 being in the top 10% of social, social uh, advantage and uh, 1 being in the lowest socioeconomic advantage, disadvantage. So that score is a pretty <coughs> handy metric, and they offer that score right down to a very small neighbourhood. But let's just say you want to use it for an area, use it for the suburb. So there's a suburb score. So I'd look at that. Um, so you start to understand the, the the socioeconomic variables of the area. Once you've got comfort there, uh, some of the stuff at the suburb and market level, uh, look at listings volumes, are they going up or down? You know, Let's bring it into context of now. If you're studying stuff now, are listings volumes go, going up? Uh, are sales volumes going up with it or stable or coming down? And if if that ratio is getting out of kilter, you'll see something called inventory, which is the the ratio of those two, inventory levels building. Uh, So, for example, if you've got 10 listings and five sell per month, 10 divided by five, two months of stock, that's pretty healthy. But if you suddenly have got four and five months of inventory and it's building and growing, generally we could say that's going to put some downward pressure on prices. So inventory analysis, looking at the movement um, of, of listings and then uh, sales volumes will give you a, a reasonable handle on it. If you're looking at it through the lens of a an investor, you want to understand vacancy rates, I think, obviously. S- flipping back to the census information, how how big is the rental market? Is it, a, is it below 10% rental tenure or is it above 50%? Below 10%, it's probably a little bit too small a market. Above 50%, it's going to have some volatility to it. You know, a lot of those markets that were 50% plus leading into the COVID exodus of, you know, the students especially going back home, a lot of those over 50% rental tenure markets suffered. So look at the volatility through time of their rents and look at the volatility through time of vacancy rates. You'll probably see that a lot of the volatile markets have a very, very high rental tenure. So you're looking for that Goldilocks sweet spot of, of, of size of that rental market. Um, look at the short and ter- short term uh, price trends just so you get a bit of an idea. Is the market going down? If I'm going to buy somewhere, um, you know, can I put a, a low ball offer in that might get off, might get accepted? So I think understand those those trends. And if inventory is building at the same time as prices coming down, you've probably got some some negotiation power. Yeah. Um, a big one that a lot of people forget, they zoom in on the median and that's scary. That's got a lot of risk to it. So the median at a suburb level is a little bit risky. It's just the middle value. Well, if the only stuff that's been listed for the last few months have been expensive properties, well, the median is going to be high. So look at the price distribution. I put that on the suburb trends map. That's free. Look at the segments. Look at how the percentage of sales in each price bracket. And if that looks a little bit like a bell-shaped curve, then yeah, the median is going to be pretty reliable. But if you're in a beach-sized suburb or some of these you know, more diverse suburbs, you might find two or three submarkets, two or three very distinct price distributions in one suburb. So understand the spread of values. And if you're buying a property in a in the top end, be very careful. You, know, you don't want to buy something that's going to break suburb records for price and then think you could spend 300K renovating it and sell it. You 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 don't you don't want to be inventing your price.
0: Yeah, no no. Well well said. And that median concept, I think people don't understand. So if if that kind of went over your head, just rewind and and listen to the to that again. We recently bought a house um, for living in a place called Sorrento in the Gold Coast, and since we bought it, the prices has, has for the median has come down in in that area. But if we were to sell that house right now, we would get. What we paid for it it's because there are other dwelling types other houses that are you know not on the river or not on the canal and other areas of that suburb those are the ones that are selling and they're just they're inferior quote unquote so you have to be very very careful around that now well said and the other thing that i want to highlight and something that you've said kent is looking at trends regardless of whichever metric that we're looking at don't just take a, a snapshot you know august or september 2022 you you have to look at month on month or quarter on quarter or year on year to paint a picture of what's going on in your head and if you do, guys, if you do want to paint a picture of that, I mean, there's so many data sources and some are reliable, some not so reliable, but do check out Kent's website, suburbtrends.com. Kent, was there any, anything sort of that, you know, you, you're in the market, you're on LinkedIn, you're probably interacting with investors and and things like that. Given the sentiment, the sort of media rhetoric at the moment, is there any like advice that that you want to give to, to folks at the moment?
1: Yeah. Um, I, look, there's a couple of things that excite me about the market, there's some spots that are becoming rather affordable. Um, I think the biggie that everyone's going to drill down on now is picking the bottom. So I would I would argue that um, just just get your mind around that because the media will start to double down on that. That'll be the big thing. Uh, and and I think don't forget the fundamentals that you've got areas that are always going to be solid. You've got areas getting some significant spend uh, in terms of infrastructure. So just just look at those long term things first, and then look for the bargains that might turn up within it. You know, and yeah, yes, you might want to wait till the bottom. Uh, picking the bottom is going to be hard, though. You yeah. know, so you you know, you wait too long. Um, I do think t- to your point, I think there's going to be a long flat period. So I don't think we're going to rush back into a boom again anytime soon.
0: No, I I, I couldn't agree with that more as well, and at the same time. You know, picking the bottom is almost like a, a fool's game because it's, you know, folks like Kent yourself. You know, it's hard. Like you, you yourself will say it's hard. It's near impossible, uh, regardless of whatever asset type or, you know, stocks, whatever. Like anything, it's it's hard to pick the bottom. And so my mantra, I don't know if you agree, Kent, is there's always markets within markets. There are areas that right now in in Australia that are still growing. Could they finish their growth? Uh, phase next month or in six months or in 12 months, it's hard to tell, but they're still growing. And there'll be times or there'll be markets that are bottoming out while others are still falling. So it's markets within markets. It's not so much when to invest, but if you're comfortable investing, it's more about where and how to invest. Do, do you agree with that? I do.
1: I, look, I think that the one of the things that's stand out is the cash flows are so good that if you bought, even if you bought a few percent above the bottom, um you know is it something you could live with you know that's only a question you can answer individually but you know the house i'm in now that was originally an investment property i probably paid about three or four percent too much you know but um over time it didn't really matter um and it was a tough purchase because we couldn't find exactly the property we wanted so that's probably a positive right now as suddenly as choice gets a little bit better you don't have to buy the main street you don't have to buy the sub you buy you buy a high quality location and i think knowing knowing the top streets that's my big thing now my big focus is analyzing and knowing what the top streets are in a suburb um, and as uh, as listings volumes increase obviously the choice and the opportunity to buy in the top streets Starts to come around, so I think that's a big focus.
0: Yeah, I did notice that that publication from you. Yeah, it's not just about suburb selection, intra-suburb selection, which are the right pockets, worst pockets. All of that is gleaned or, or can be concluded through data and then verified by just a few phone calls. But it, it's very important. Maybe that's for another time, Ken. Yes. But, um, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. I know you're a you're a busy man and and guys. Um, I, I really do urge you. I have no business affiliation with um, with Kent, but I sometimes go on sububtrems.com myself just to, to check it out. It's there as a resource, use it or don't use it, but it's there for you guys. Um, thanks so much, Kent. Great, thank you, PK.